from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up. Bringing kiribati back into, into the forum was obviously a really important foreign policy that Rambuka wanted to lead off. Kiribati has signaled its return to the Pacific Islands Forum, but there is still a lot to be done to fully mend regional unity. Also, we're here, we're a trusted partner for the Pacific. We want to continue to work closely with Pacific countries. New Zealand's new Prime Minister says he's focused on strengthening Aotearoa's Pacific ties and... ...said that the military might have some responsibility for making sure that the separation of powers is guaranteed. Fiji's military still casting a shadow over the new government and the new Prime Minister, Sitiveni Rambuka. The government of Kiribati has formally reinstated its positive endorsement to rejoin the Pacific Islands Forum this year. This was confirmed in a statement from the president. It says the decision comes following a fruitful, positive and successful bilateral meeting held between the current chair of the Pacific Islands Forum and the Prime Minister of Fiji, Sitiveni Rambuka, and the president of Kiribati. Kiribati's shock withdrawal from the forum in July last year contradicted the rhetoric at the time around the work being done to repair relations between the North and South Pacific, which deteriorated over the appointment of Cook Island's former Prime Minister, Henry Puna, as Secretary General of the forum over the Micronesian candidate, the Marshall Islands diplomat Gerald Zakios. I spoke with Massey University Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Defence and Security Studies, Anna Poles, about the significance of Kiribati's intention to return to the fold ahead of forum leaders meeting early this year. Obviously, excellent news uh, from Kiribati following Prime Minister Rampoka's visit uh, that Kiribati will be re- rejoining the forum. Uh, and you know, this is this is obviously you know one of the top issues for for twenty twenty was going to be Pacific regionalism, and it still it still is uh, a, a top issue. Uh, with all the work that is currently being done. However, having Kiribati back in the family uh, will go a long way to being able to move forward on a number of the issues which brought about the Micronesian exit. Now, there have been quite a few issues sort of raised with the forum over the years, and Rambuka kind of spoke to the the fallout with Fiji and the creation of the Pacific Islands Development Forum is sort of a wedge in between this whole just one voice kind of an issue and even suggested re-looking at whether the leaders would like to close that down rather than having uh, mm. multiple voices in the region. Um, in terms of mm. actually addressing like the composition of the Pacific Islands Forum, some of the way decisions are made, how, how much are we seeing of actual change towards that end? Well, it's going to be really interesting to see how this unfolds now. Obviously, you know, Fiji uh, under uh, Prime Minister Ramboka has taken a, a really strong leadership role in seeking to heal some of the divisions uh, with the, and fractures within Pacific regionalism. And he sig- signaled out 2006 uh, and, and then the, and the creation of the PIDF. Uh, as a consequence of that, uh, and and really, uh, you know, through the the ceremonies that that took place in in, in Kiribati during uh, Rambuka's visit, really took um, 
leadership in seeking to heal some of those divisions. Now, obviously, there is some way to go. Rambuka signaled that uh, a number of the decisions that need to be made under the Suva Agreement will need to be made amongst the Micronesian countries themselves. Uh, for instance, where this, uh, where the sub-regional office is going to be located, for instance, it initially was signaled that it would be in RMI. Uh, however, there are indications that Kiribati may be seeking to locate it there. So there is still some you know, resolution to, and, and sort of reconciliation, for want of a better word, to take place amongst uh, the Micronesian countries as in order to, to really uh, to, to strengthen regionalism more broadly. So there is still some way to go, but this is the, bringing Kiribati back into, into the forum uh, before the forum chair role was handed over from Fiji to Cook Islands uh, uh, in March, February, March, was, was, was obviously a really important foreign policy point that Rambuka wanted to lead off following the... Um, the election of the coalition government in Fiji late last year. I keep pressing the composition of the forum because like originally like it was quite clear that you know it was independent Pacific countries. Um mm. they had some observers with the Canucks and and uh the territories, but now we've seen in the last uh decade or so a change in that membership in that uh, uh some some territories are now actually inside mm. inside the fold also um we've obviously got uh indonesia we've got china as well interested in and in being more active inside the forum and we have the situation with australia and new zealand being the, the major funders of, of the body as well and and the absence of the u.s pacific territories and a, a, a few others that are in the ocean so the moana the pacific ocean as well has been mm-hmm. questioned in the past what are the I guess maybe maybe even almost explaining to us the the makeup of the current forum and the the power dynamics within that. So I think Kuroi, you touched on a number of really important points here uh, about um, sub-regionalism and the way that it's shaping uh, the forum and regionalism more broadly in the Pacific. I think it's important to note that under Dame Meg Taylor, the former Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, the funding arrangements were shifted uh, so that there is fairly equal between Australia and New Zealand on the one hand and then the uh, other Pacific Island Forum member countries on the other. So really to try and and, and balance that out. But one of the concerns that's come up with the super agreement uh, and with the additional sub-regional offices and, and uh, et cetera, is the question of who will fund those additional sub-regional arrangements. Uh, and so that may, again, shift the balance of funding uh, slightly until uh, for in, in the short term. In, then, of course, you know, there's the issue around uh, the, the question of, of, of membership of the forum and how that we have seen that expand out to include the uh, French territories as part of that. And there are, of course, you know, significant questions around the geopoliticization of the forum as the consequence of, of, of a number of countries having sort of proxy, shall we say, it's kind of proxy seats at the table. Um, and then, of course, you know, we have the broader question around the role of, of other 
significant external actors in the region, such as you mentioned Indonesia, China, of course, uh, and then uh, others who fall under, as China does, fall under the Dialogue Partner grouping. Of course, last year, the Dialogue Partners meeting wasn't held uh, in um, in in Fiji, uh, and there are still, still uh, questions around uh, when it'll be held uh, this year. And so there's a lot of sort of jostling amongst those external dialogue stakeholders, those dialogue partners uh, for, for a position uh, in order to be able to engage uh, with the forum. So I think what we'll see this year is a sort of a continuing kind of shakedown of regionalism. Uh, and of course, you know, we have that, that sub-regional level, all the, those other groupings, the Melanesian Spearhead Group, uh, the um, Polynesian leader, Leaders Grouping, uh, the PIDF, of course, which, which Ramboka has referred to, uh, and others. Um, and, and those groupings are going to be really, really important going forward uh, as the PIF will be going through a significant implementation uh, process of the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific Continent. Aotearoa New Zealand's new Prime Minister has agreed to look at an overstayer petition that was launched by Pacific community leaders almost three years ago. The petition calls for pathways to residency to be established for Pacifica overstayers. In a brief interview with Lydia Lewis, Chris Hipkins was questioned over a lack of action by the government over the issue. The government says it is committed to upholding a fair rules-based immigration system and delivering on the goals of the immigration rebalance. But it admitted progressing an amnesty for overstayers would be a considerable undertaking and regardless of which group of people it may be extended to, it would take time to progress and would require legislative change. Prime Minister Hipkins says he is committed to Pacific communities in Aotearoa and will look into the calls made in the petition. I want to make sure that we have a country in New Zealand where Pacific people are respected, they have a place, uh, and where we continue to maintain a really strong relationship with their home countries. Will you lead the charge in making changes and make sure that they can call New Zealand their home, that overstars don't need to look over their backs? I haven't had an opportunity to look at that Will particular look issue yet, but I, I absolutely intend to look at it. The Prime Minister has also reaffirmed the country's commitment to the Pacific. It follows Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister calling on all countries to play their part in preventing a war in the Indo-Pacific region amid increasing tensions between the United States and China. While Mr Hipkins says he cannot comment on the specifics as he has not listened to her speech, he did say New Zealand's relationship with the Pacific remains strong. My message to the Pacific is uh, probably the same as Jacinda Ardern's, which is, you know, we're here, we're um, a trusted partner for the Pacific. Um, we want to continue to work closely with Pacific countries. and um, We're always at the other end of the phone if they've got things that they want to talk about or they've got areas where they want to work with us on. Um, and we'll be really focused on strengthening our own relationship with Pacific countries. Meanwhile, when asked if he would be attending this year's Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting, he had this to say. I can't make a decision on that until I've got a date, but certainly it is a priority for me. It will depend on logistics. The Pacific Islands Forum Secretary-General says the PIF leaders are looking at a forum date in October after the UN General Assembly in New York.
It's been a busy first month for Fiji's new coalition government, which has set about restructuring the public service hierarchy amid constant criticisms from the opposition group. As the first new government since the country's return to democracy in 2014, there are understandable teething issues. However, the overall responsibility of the military for the well-being of Fiji and all Fijians under the constitution is a cause for concern going forward. I spoke with Victoria University of Wellington Professor in Comparative Politics, John Frankel, about the first few weeks of Siti Rambuka's government. Uh, government's been going around all the ministries, going around the churches, going around the local communities, um, talking to people, lots of um, commemorations, celebrations, lots of discussion, a, a, a significant change in the flavour of government and the way government is done compared to the... Uh, Fiji First Administration. On the other hand, of course, on, first on the uh, uh, 1st of January and then on several occasions within in ja- early January, uh, Bainimarama and the former Attorney General have made all sorts of allegations about the supposed breaches of the Constitution by the new government, most of which are nonsense. Um, the um, uh, the uh, claims that asking people to resign is uh, unconstitutional is wrong. It's not unconstitutional to ask people to resign. It's unconstitutional to force them to resign. There are constitutional processes which are being gone through in the case of the police commissioner and uh, several others. So, um, yes, there are certainly lots of attempts to destabilise the government going on, but uh, these have not been successful. And Banimarama walked out of the Constitutional Offices Commission uh, last week uh, the government clearly has a majority on that commission and therefore can do pretty much as it as it pleases. The um, opposition has a minority and is unable to block some of the important changes. Uh, uh, asking the police commissioner to step down, which is suspended at the moment, is um, almost inevitable because he, uh, the, the police force has brought in many of the current ministers for questioning over recent months in, in ways that were clearly very partisan and very much oriented towards uh, trying to uh, advantage Fiji first and disadvantage the opposition. We we were obviously in Fiji for that prime minister's election, and and just some of the, some of the conversations were sort of wondering whether Rambuka's rhetoric of you know um, congratulating Fiji first on on well acknowledging Fiji first for the work it had done and that it was taking over and being very sort of statesmanlike in terms of the their uh, coming into power whether that would continue or whether they would be vindictive and use some of the tools that Fiji first has created <laughs> and used against them in the past uh, on the now opposition uh, leader and his and his group so uh, uh, what is your sense of that side of things in terms of the the way that the current government is behaving? Well, uh, uh, the um, let the love shine kind of campaign theme of uh, the People's Alliance uh, uh, was very much one of no recriminations that they wouldn't be going after people. And I think that's the case. They haven't gone after Bainamarama. Um, they've, they've gone after people who are clearly spoilers of the new government, including the police commissioner and the former attorney general. Um, the, they've dispensed with the services of the um, CEO of Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, who seems to have been paying himself more than the prime minister earns. Um, 
there are a couple of permanent secretaries, but there are also permanent secretaries and people in key positions in government under Fiji First whose services have been retained, have been redeployed to other parts of the uh, civil service. So it's by no means a kind of crude victimization sort of approach. They seem to be approaching this on a sort of case-by-case basis. Now, turning to this this. The, the legal clause or the clauses that are, that are vague around the all-assuming power of the military in certain situations in Fiji and, and how much of a threat that is or a perceived threat to, to the government, let's say, overstepping um, its constitutional, I don't know, mandate and triggering the military into taking over and resetting everything. Uh, how, how Can you explain a bit about the, the laws involved and why they're of concern? Well, yes, the um, 2013 Constitution revived this provision that existed in the 1990 Constitution that gave the military responsibility for looking after the well-being of the Fiji people. Of course, when that was first introduced in 1990, it was as part of an ethno-nationalist constitution that was seeking to uh, codify indigenous paramountcy in the state. After that, uh, at that point, I think the uh, Fiji military contemplated briefly uh, uh, assuming power in an unconstitutional way for 16 years. But it didn't do that. And after that, by the early 1990s, uh, things had calmed down. There was a, a desire to reinforce civilian government for the military to keep out of politics. It's only really in the wake of the spate coup that um, the uh, uh, Mohamed Aziz um, uh, um, re- rehabilitated this provision in the 1990 constitution and uh, suggested that it still applied under the 97 constitution and then they put it in the 2013 constitution. Now what does this mean? Now well, it could mean just about anything. What, what does it mean to look after the welfare of the Fiji people? You could interpret that to mean anything at all. I noticed that uh, before the um, final result when Rambuka perhaps misguidedly uh, complained to the military commander about the glitch, about the uh, counting of the election ballots, the, uh, the the military commander said that that wasn't within his remit. In other words, he thought that didn't fall under this Section 131 of the Constitution that gives the military right to intervene to protect the well-being of the Fiji people. But after the election of the new government in early January, the uh, military commander, uh, Johnny Kalini White, did make a, a, a peculiar statement where he said that the, uh, he expressed concern about the ambition of the government and about the speed at which things were moving. And he also uh, suggested that the military might have some responsibility for um, making sure that the separation of powers is guaranteed. Now, that's usually a role for the courts not for the military. So one has to be careful about this kind of expansive uh, understanding of the role of the military in the new Fiji. I think uh, there need to be further discussions about what that actually means. The Cook Islands is seeing if it can import medicinal cannabis without changing any of its laws. The country voted in favour of cannabis being allowed for medicinal use in a referendum during the 2022 general election. A government-created committee for medicinal cannabis is exploring the legal framework. The committee chair, Minister Tingika Elikana, speaks with Caleb Fotheringham. 
what might change in terms of Cook Islands laws? The first one is we're looking at the Ministry of Health legislation and also its uh, regulations in terms of whether there are powers under the current legal framework to enable the Secretary of Health to import into the Cook Islands uh, medicinal purpose and also how we should go about it. We rely on the advice of outside bodies like MedSafe in New Zealand, and I think also there's an Australian body responsible for uh, approving medicines coming into Australia. And also, if it comes from America, then we look at the FDA, whether it's it's an approved medicine. And what it looks like at the moment, can you import cannabis into the Cook Islands? Well, the initial advice is it's quite positive, but uh, I think uh, we are waiting the, the final advice from Crown Law, and there might be some minor changes to current uh, legislation, so we are waiting um, final advice from Crown Law in that respect. In terms of the laws actually changing, I read in Cook Islands News this morning that the Prime Minister said you might look to change the laws a little bit to be more in line with New Zealand Australia. Is that correct? That, that's the view expressed by the Prime Minister, but uh, from from the committee viewpoint, we're going to look at all the possibilities because if we're going to go down the road of manufacturing our own medicinal cannabis, then we look at the issue of possession because you don't want to catch everybody who are legally entitled to possess because of being involved in the manufacturing of uh, cannabis medicine in the Cook Islands. So there might be some areas where possession under license or possessing a, a certain amount for personal use, things like that. I think that's something that the committee will need to look at. Yeah, and in terms of that whole manufacturing inside the Cook Islands, does it seem like there could be quite a big business opportunity there? That's something that those uh, entrepreneurs in the Cook Islands might have to look at. But I think uh, from... Our perspective is just to provide the enabling um, environment if, if there is an opportunity there. Because one of the things we need to consider also is the cost. At the moment, we don't know what the cost is regarding to access to medicinal cannabis. Um, I mean, if the opportunity is it's cheaper for us to manufacture our own and then provide to treat the, those with ailments in the, in the country, then we might have to go down that road and encourage people to, to look at that opportunity. Has there been much discussion about recreational use in the committee? No, at the moment, because we're just sticking to the referendum question to, to review and then the access to uh, medicinal uh, cannabis and also research into medicinal cannabis. When do you think medicinal cannabis will be in the Cook Islands? It's something that uh, the Ministry of Health has to look at when that can be done because there are other factors like cost, as I just alluded to. The thing is for us to look at the legal framework, whether we can import additional cannabis. But at the moment, at the moment, it's, it's looking positive. As I said, it is looking positive, uh, but we're just awaiting a final uh, advice from the Crown Law Office confirming the advice to cabinet the actions necessary to enable the importation of medicinal cannabis into the Cook Islands.
We Are Still Here is a unique film title that explores the effects of colonization on indigenous peoples in Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific through eight separate stories. Samoan Kiwi creatives Mario Ngoa and Miki Mangasiva co-wrote and directed the uniform story in the film, following a Samoan soldier who befriends a Turkish soldier while entrenched in Gallipoli during World War I. Susanna Suiswiki spoke to the two directors and started off by asking how they got involved in the film project. Basically, uh, We Are Still Here is a uh, collab from, uh, between Film Commission and uh, Screen Australia or Film Australia. And they were out and asking for scripts to be sent through to them um, to make a uh, series of short films. That was the original idea. So, of course, me and I, Mickey and myself, submitted, as did other people. In the end, uh, they chose eight scripts, four from New Zealand, four from Australia, and we made a film that became We Are Still Here. The piece that you both worked on is the uniform. What was it about the war in Gallipoli that felt like it was the appropriate setting to address the effects of colonialism on Pacific people? Well, Mario and I uh, like to do a little bit of the unexpected. Um, so we chose to kind of hide uh, the messages and themes of our story in, in this war story. I mean, I had heard that um, at Gallipoli, uh, the premise of our particular film um, actually happened um, at Gallipoli. And I always thought that uh, that was an amazing starting off place to to have a story. Uh, to me, you know, all the, all, all the things you heard about that place were also gruesome and horrific and um, nasty. And so to hear that this beautiful uh, friendship thing happened in, in such a war-torn place, um, I just thought was magical. Um, and so we set about writing a little script based on that. Um, now, when you, you know, when you put, a, you know, your main character um, in this sort of environment um, and that character is fighting for a colonial uniform uh, that he no longer identifies with because he's surrounded by this horror um he goes through a bit of an identity crisis and a loss of identity he doesn't really know where he's from it was the the film was um set up to uh celebrate 250 years uh since captain cook arrived in the south pacific which is why we had representation from both new zealand and australia um and it was uh, the indigenous right of reply uh to uh, that colonization of the South Pacific. So uh, Mario and I decided to do a story where somebody's lost and lost the sense of what he's fighting for, lost uh, the sense of the uniform he's fighting for, and then finds something beautiful uh, and uh, the enemy that he's supposedly fighting against. What is it about Indigenous stories that fascinates filmmakers to keep putting it out on screen? Is it for Indigenous communities to celebrate their identity and resilience, or is it an attempt to address white guilt? I think it's I think it's a little bit of both sometimes, uh, but for for me certainly it's uh, about addressing underrepresentation. Um, you know, for a, a place that has for a place that has the uh, largest uh, representation of Pacific Island communities, you'd think that, um, you know, we would uh, 
see that reflected on what we watch on television uh, or the amount of programs we watch on television and the films that we see at the theatre uh, or the films that we make here in New Zealand. So, you know, a, a part of it uh, for me is is addressing that. I guess I would add to that by saying, just adding, you know, essentially to what Mario is saying is, and and it's, it's a bit of a cliche to say that we write, you know, what we know. And so this, we are Pacific Islanders. And so we do naturally tend to write, um, certainly to begin with, as Pacific Islanders. Now, we would love to get to a stage where we start to do other stories, wider stories. But I think initially when we're launching, um, we, we want to tell our stories. And as a part of telling any story, you want to hit on themes that has a strong message. And from minority people who have had lots of struggles in the past, drama is always something that you turn to as a storyteller. And we have lots of drama in our history. So it's nice to bring up a lot of the concerns that we've had. It's nice to highlight some of the things that we've had to go through previously. That all makes for good drama, as well as give ourselves a bit of a voice. It gives us a bit of an identity to say, this is who we are. This is what we went through. These are the stories that we can tell and we can be powerful storytellers telling those and hopefully give messages to both our own people coming up but also across to um you know uh, other ethnicities um to try and understand us better The Henderson Eels Football Club in Solomon Islands says the secret behind securing the first ever professional European football contract for a locally based player is sending the right candidate. This week, the country's rising football star, Rafael Leai, signed for Bosnian top flight club FK Velez Mostar for an undisclosed amount of money. The Solomon Islands International is valued at £250,000 on one international transfer market website. I spoke with Eels Football Club President Hudson Wakio shortly after the news of the signing broke this week and began by asking him what sets Rafael Leai apart from other Solomon Islands footballers. Yes, I think one of the things that I, I, I believe that Rafael is different from most of our players is the discipline-wise and his uh, eagerness to continue push his, uh, I mean, to challenge himself and push himself to, to achieve more, I mean, higher goals. Like for example, Raf, uh, in, in here in Solomon, most of these players they they only train once a day, like in the evening. Uh, maybe very few players they they train in the morning and in the, in the evening. But for Rafael, he trains three times a day. Even our club, we only uh, training once a day, only in the evenings. But he do his own training in the morning and he do his own training during the lunch hour and he joined the, the rest of the boys in the evening. And even some of the days he, he trained four four times. He trained with the national team, with our club and with do his own training. So one of the things I, I found that Rafael is a bit different from others is he's he's very disciplined. He don't consume alcohol, he don't smoke, he don't go out. He mostly go to church and his, his training. And the other one is he's really continue pushing himself, like two more trainings so that he can uh, always be the top of his football. Yes, and um, probably worth talking about the impact or even the the 
influence of futsal in Solomon Islands. I know Rafael also comes from that pedigree. Um, how important is that that futsal beginning for young Solomon Islands players coming through the ranks? Yes, I think football is uh, the futsal. It's re- truly have impacts on on Rafael and the rest of the Solomon Island players. One of the reasons I believe that it has an impact on the on a, on the Solomon players is you don't have to play in a uh, in a big field. So like in Solomon, we don't have many many we don't have a lot of fields available for for players to use. So we just use whatever small grounds available to play. Like here in Solomon, most of these uh, our players they train on the the road on the side of the houses, just in a even very small uh, ground we play. So. Yes, football, uh, futsal really have impact because this is where uh, most of these uh, boys, they have access to, to those small pitches. So now, given that we have a two or three available standard um, futsal ground, a futsal uh, uh, field, I think the level of football here will be growing to a new heights. That's Tangata Ote Moana for this week. Until next week, Arirang. Thank you.